So hi Oliver, nice. It's great for us to get on this call actually, because uh, I've seen you go through a bit of a rebrand and a bit of change in in what you do. Um, do Do you want to start off and give us a bit of an introduction and uh, the start of Pinpoint and what you've done some uh, kind of leading up to rebrand stage? Let's call. Yeah, yeah, of course. So Pinpoint back in the day when we started was very much just video, um, I suppose, and film orientated. We'd produce a corporate video. That's fine. We give it to the clients and off they go. And then during our, because we're we, eight years old now, during that time, we've then changed into animation, we've done a bit of live, and we've just basically developed these services. But during the pandemic, we kind of had the ability and the headspace to step back and go, where do we want to take this to and how can we take it to the next level? And we were, you know, 20 staffing before that. And pandemic happened, had that time. We pivoted to a certain extent into content strategy and basically data-led creative which actually has seen a massive uplift during and the end, towards the end of the pandemic. Uh, and has enabled us now to kind of A, rebrand, as you can kind of see there, um, that's part of the brand, and then and B, actually kind of manage and monitor our clients' um, videos and animation, essentially, to make sure they're not just bunging it out and hoping for the best, that we're actually running it off data and insights and analytics and generating a return. What's... Um... That, that's interesting then. I, I kind of, I see, I saw the switch and I saw it happening. Uh, I was at an event just before, I think well, it's quite a bit before COVID, maybe before Christmas um, yeah. in the winter in, so that must've been 2019. Yeah. Leading into uh, the pandemic. Um, and that was really insightful because you've shown some of the work, but then you were, I think you were just thinking about the content side of things and moving that way. So, so did that, did the idea to do that happen just before the pandemic then, I'm guessing? To a certain extent, we always knew we wanted to, to, to move away from just creating content and I suppose hoping for the best to actually using insights and data in a more methodical way, because that was just where the value was to our clients. They kept coming to us and going, it's not working. And we go, well, it's, it's not the fact that we haven't produced the right content. It's the fact that you're not using it correctly. And actually it kind of reflected badly on us as a brand because it was perceived to be not working. So actually it was something we were gonna do over the sort of forthcoming two or three years, but the pandemic kind of sped that up because we had the ability to literally step back and half the workload because we couldn't go out onto location to capture content. So actually we repurposed a lot of that into essentially market research for ourselves, as well as instructing branding agencies to, to come up with this new pinpoint essentially. And I kid you not, over the last sort of 12 months or so, our new office, our new brand, our new staff, it's a totally different business. Yeah, that's interesting. It was a, so it was essentially a journey of creating the content and then seeing actually, we can't go anywhere and do anything. So how do we make the most of what we have? Exactly. And a lot of that resonates with smaller businesses because they kind of haven't got a choice. <laughs> they have to deal with what they've been dealt and what, they, what they've already got. But it was more of, a, I mean, you look at the market or the world now, there's what they call UGC, user generated content. And actually during the pandemic, people were making uh, videos and adverts through, through Zoom, for instance. And actually you look at it and you go, well, if you can't go out and film and you can't necessarily make content to the level that you might normally, how can you use data and insight to be able to engage and market to people um, that, that you're wanting to reach? And actually a lot of it's recutting old content and repurposing it. Other elements are actually just moving with times and using abilities or, or techniques that, that are actually there and current currently. So actually there was an element of just need to do this rather than strategic decision. Arguably it was already forecast to be done at some point, it just expedited it. So from a data point of view, where, what part of the process does data come in? Is this like a research element of it or is it more of a targeting element of it? Where, There's where multiple areas. 
there's multiple areas. You've got the market research up front, which is generic stuff, but you also have the audience research, the actual looking at what campaigns they've done previously, where they've put content previously, what their, their buyers are essentially engaging with, everything down to, you know, phrases that they'll type into, into Google, for instance. That's the simple stuff. The real data comes as we start to actually distribute proper content for them within the funnels and the areas that we've identified during the initial phase. And as we begin or we continue that relationship with a client, six months in, you have such a pool of data, you can go, actually, this video or this piece of content didn't work for this one reason. So let's change that. And then you'll see the uplift because we have that data to analyze, which yeah. is above and beyond what most people internally can do because they just don't have the time. Whereas we've got a team of people that can sit back, analyze it, look at different areas and basically advise and guide on it. So it becomes essentially like a marketing company, but with the ability to do it all in-house, unlike marketing companies that outsource all the production. So we call it data-led creative with production expertise. Uh, so I've seen you as well. Um, I've seen you become content-driven. Mm. It's, it's been quite a clear cut. I, I remember a lot of promotion was, was very like campaign advertisement heavy. And then you made some pretty big stumps and waves in, in podcasting. So where, how did podcasting become part of this overall uh, journey or strategy, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, you're right in much as saying that actually what we've done with the content we've been pushing out has raised our profile massively. So it's almost a case in point. And with regards to, with regards to podcasting, that again was during the pandemic, had a bit of headspace. I was thinking... Are there other entrepreneurs that are going through the trials, the issues, the barriers that we're going up against? And well, the answer is yes, it's, it's very obvious. And actually, we started this podcast, literally, it was in my bedroom, it was with a microphone and a pair of headphones, that was it. Um, uh, and, and we essentially started speaking to entrepreneurs, and we put it out onto Apple, we distributed it, we shouted about it. And over time, we got some really, really interesting interesting interviews and, and now we've got a studio that we've built we've actually got microphones set up for four people and we've had multiple different people from all over the world dial in and we've won awards and it's all within 12 months so actually audio and voice are going to be huge but we're just at the beginning of people starting to accept it well one of the things i love about podcasting is the access it gives you to yeah. people especially now that we have zoom you know and everyone's got used to the fact that you know if you know, worst case scenario, you don't have to travel anywhere. You can do this. Um, so uh, it gives you access to people you might not have been able to get agreeing to before. So what's been the most interesting conversation you've had in the studio? Uh, in the studio we've, uh, or, or sort of virtually? Yeah, generally just in the, on the podcast. So Yeah, so on the podcast we've had, I suppose the most interesting one will have been Rory Sweet, who founded a company called RBR Networks back in the day. And it was very much like that Wolf of Wall Street culture when he started. He was actually selling essentially grey Cisco kits, marking it up and shifting it on, which was a little bit dodgy back then, whenever it was 30 years ago. Anyway, made lots of money, grew a big business, and it was generally entrepreneurial. It was fascinating. That's one of the stories. Arguably, there's other very, very interesting stories that may not be up in terms of revenue, but actually in terms of journey, equally as interesting, if not slightly more. You know, you've got... The guys at Ghost Agency, Harry, for instance, who have just done a minority sale um, for equity in the business. He came on, I think it was his second podcast that we did, Harry was on. Um, and there was all this conversation around influencer marketing, what the next 12 months holds. And actually, that's a fascinating story for totally different reasons. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, what a journey he's been on. To, to think that this business that he built out of his interest, you know, or, or something that he did on the sidelines to them, 
uh, built into such a big thing. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the thing, right, Danny, in terms of there are so many opportunities out there. There are so many people with passions. How do you take that passion into something which is actually qualifiable and quantifiable and actually able to make it into a business? And we know we've had businesses on there that are three, six months old. But the reason we brought them on was to show that it's possible. We don't want to just blind people with millions and millions of pounds. It's, look, this person's turning over 50K, but they've got a great trajectory. So let's stick with podcasting for a minute, because that's that's interesting in itself, because essentially you have this, this really kind of top-level content. If you take video out of it, you have this audio top-level content, and there's so much you can do with it. But how does it then... Some people will ask, but it's podcasting. It's like it's just a conversation. Like we're just having a conversation... We just so happen to record it and put it out there for people to have be a fly on the wall or to, to learn from people's experiences. So, but they might struggle with how it fits into a business. Yep. So how has it been for pinpoint in terms of revenue generating or business generating for you? So it's a really, uh, a really good question, actually. Uh, and so many people have been asking us, can you do podcasts for our business? What does that cost? And it really depends on what they're wanting to achieve, right? For instance, it can fit into businesses from an internal point of view, because actually to liken it to a large conglomerate, you mentioned Deloitte earlier, internally, there might be employee engagements, but they might not want to do video because the directors aren't comfortable enough to be on video or whatever that might be, or they just want a quicker, more reactive medium. Okay, great. Well, voice is that. And actually voice is a lot more, um, I suppose, usable in as much as you could listen to it whilst driving. You can engage with more people through voice. Smart speakers utilize voice and audio, but they don't necessarily fully utilize video yet. So actually, there are multiple different purposes for podcasting and audio from an internal to an external point of view, but it really depends on what kind of business you are. And it's like video. You know, back in the day, people said, well, how do I use video? And it was kind of like, well, you can market with it, but actually you can also use it internally. You can use it for training. There are so many different places you can use video, so many different places you can use animation. And and voice is the next thing, you know, with schema markups and invocation phrases, and there's one in three smart homes in the UK with smart speakers, you know, it's obvious to see that voice is where the world's going, as is audio, you know, there's two different things there. So like some of the words you just said then were pretty big, pretty long and can scare some people. So do you want to expand on that? Oh, of course, that was, yeah, sorry, that was that was remiss of me. So uh, invocation phrases are, are, are very, very interesting in as much as if you look at a URL, for instance, you know, pinpoint-media.co.uk, that's a URL, we own that URL. Now, an invocation phrase is something which on Amazon Alexa, for instance, you'd buy. So Nike might go and buy, just do it. And you might go, Alexa, just do it. And that would load up anything audio related uh, to, to Nike. And actually, that is the way the world is going. It's going to be buying invocation phrases, it's going to buy URLs. And you're also starting to see, and we've done it on our websites, uh, voice optimized websites. So actually, if you go to our blogs or our insights, you'll be able to listen to everything that's on there rather than actually reading it. And it makes it so much more accessible, not just from an ease point of view, but for people that have site issues, for instance, can just listen to content. So I think it's, I think it's very exciting. Yeah, I think there's a lot we can do now. Whenever someone would have said before about building a website, hardly anyone, I think, would have said before, yeah, but we need to make it accessible for people who, who are maybe blind, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't really thought about that, but everything's becoming so much more accessible now with voice activation and, uh, yeah. and podcast is a great part of that because I've seen it lately, actually, what you just said, which is you go on a news website and it says, listen to this article. Um, 
Uh, yeah, and I've seen it slowly getting more and more, especially with news sites. I think it's a, a core piece of their puzzle, clearly. But if you look at Nissan and Honda, right, and they're, they're bringing out new cars, these cars have got Alexa in. Okay, so there's clearly a future there to ask the car questions and to ask the car to do things, and it will respond in a hopefully less, I suppose, programmatic way to where how, how some of these audio things are at the moment. <laughs> But you're absolutely right, because alt uh, text, for instance, on certain images online back in the day was the only way that people could actually, I suppose, see or listen to what the image was, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas now what they call optimi uh, voice optimization or audio optimization is becoming a big thing within website development. Um, I think it's scary for a lot of people right now. And I think small businesses might be a bit reluctant to, to invest in it just yet until they see how it works. But I reckon in 12, 18 months time, It'll be the mainstream. So I want to just rewind a minute, just going back to the podcast and, and video element. Yeah. So for for Pinpoint as a business, is is video, because you do a lot of the podcasting now, but is, is video still a, a, like a top level piece of content for you? It's still, it's still a core piece? I'd, I, you know, I would, I would say 40% of the revenue comes through video and comes through, I suppose, film. And that could be anything from TV adverts to so online videos, internal training, whatever type of content that is, UGC, for instance, and re-editing. Um, I'd also bracket live under that in terms of broadcast and live stream. But I would also add that animation is a massive, if not equal part of the business in terms of revenue. And then it's bolstered by, I suppose, the new services that we've offered, of which strategy is literally, what, six months old, five months old, um, and actually growing massively. We're building out, you'll see online, there's nine new roles next month that we're hiring for. Um, and this is all because there's so much demand out there that we're having to scale massively. And I, I would imagine by Christmas we'll be 40, 45 staff, I'd imagine. Yeah, wow. Amazing growth. Um, so the the strat the content strategy. Yeah, yeah. That's clearly a, a, a massive piece of the puzzle for yeah. any business, really. But where where did you see the opportunity there for that? Like what problems did you see that that then solves? It, so for me, it's quite simple to see that it solves a problem because you go, well, if the videos aren't delivering because the client's not using them correctly, how do you make them deliver? Okay, well, you manage that for them. And actually, that's great because it's a double-edged sword because you're managing the content distribution for them, reporting on the analytics, so you become almost invaluable to the client. And actually, that relationship becomes easier because you're on a longer journey. You're not just producing a piece of content for the client and going, thank you. You're going, okay, we'll do the content, we'll do the analytics, we'll do the management. And it's this whole kind of 360 agency, I loathe the term, but it kind of is a 360 um, proposal for these clients. Um, and it's it's very much on a subscription basis because there's no point in tying people into retainers anymore because people just get annoyed. They just go, well, you're just charging me 30% more and doing half the work. Wrong, actually. 100% of the ad spend, for instance, they put with us goes into all the content that we distribute arguably our subscription model is very, very simple to understand. And I think that level of authenticity is what allows us to kind of work with our clients. Mm, yeah, interesting. Do you have, uh, uh, I remember even as Danny and co, we, we've, ha we've kind of run on content the whole time, really. Since yeah. Ever since I started out on my own, it was, uh, it was content driven. It was posts on LinkedIn or, or videos on Facebook. And I remember doing lives every day on Facebook yeah. just to get a piece of content that I could then use somewhere else. And because it was so hard to access 
LinkedIn Live at the time. I just used to repurpose lives from Facebook as if they were LinkedIn Lives and I'd just post them over. Um, and then there was another piece of the puzzle, which was like captions and these statistics that come out about people that, you know, watch videos with no sound. And then there's, so there's so many parts of this puzzle. Where, where's the, for, for your clients as pinpoint, uh, in Pinpoint Media, for your clients, where, explain to people just the scale of opportunity with content and repurposing and that kind of thing. Well, I suppose it, it again, depends on the objective and what kind of uh, corporation or business that you actually are. But repurposing content is just a way of making the content cheaper for yourself and maximizing, I suppose, the return on investment because you produce something, for instance, we did it the other day. So Barrett Development's prime example, Pride in the Job Awards, it was dated 2020. That's because it was produced in 2020. So what do we do? Well, we just cut elements out of it to make it sound like it's based in 2021. You know, very, very simple stuff can be done and it doesn't have to be a complete butcher. It can just be making sure that actually you're still current and you're, you're not aging things by date or aging things by, you know, news articles or news stories and making sure that when you do repurpose the content, it still fundamentally resonates with the viewer because that's, that's what you want, right? You want people to engage. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's talk about brand. Yep. Why the rebrand? What brought it on? I'm always interested to know, like, that it's, if anyone ever comes to us and, and talks about branding, it's usually, there's usually very surface level reason. And I want to dig into, that's not the reason. What's the real reason? So I'm interested to know what brought on the rebrand, what triggered it, and at what point did you go, we need to rebrand? Like this yeah, is I think I think for me it was when we started to see see that we weren't attracting necessarily the highest caliber talent and understanding that we need to expand into and we're opening an office in London at the moment as well as opening up in, in in Manchester at the end of the year and we've got this quite aggressive growth strategy where it's kind of going okay yeah fine we are the size that we are now but in the next 12 24 months we are going to be significantly bigger and we're going to be in a lot of other places now you can't do that with the brand that we had previously because it, it it was a little bit too uk focused and it seemed a little bit small i suppose startup so we went on this journey and kind of went we want to take it to another level we want to have this perceived i suppose ability to scale from be it a staffing point of view or a client point of view how do we do that and we came up with this really beautiful contemporary quite modern and chic brand which is that target behind me with pinpoint media underneath and i think it personally looks brilliant and actually we've seen a massive amount more engagement from both job roles and clients going i love the refresh i think it's brilliant and they can see that we are investing in the business to take us to that level i'm interested to know outside of the visual aspects of your brand if anything changed internally like uh, deliberately everything Danny changed internally and totally totally deliberately um and I mean I suppose the first and foremost we we took on a whole new office we got rid of our previous office and our previous way of working I think is the easiest way to summarize it and we took on this glorious glass office um uh, and essentially made it open plan we put in a studio we put in some dividers and some breakout spaces and we made it open plan for the guys to to come in and actually that was the first thing that we did because with this new brand with this ability to to scale we wanted to have this almost flexibility within the office for people to work and people can come in you know when they want to come in they can come in two days a week three days a week one day a week i don't really mind but the, the main thing is we are rebranding visually but we're also rebranding from a cultural point of view as well i mean i'm interested in that i'm very um 
for some reason, it's become such a massive point of reference for me when it comes to culture and how businesses work. And I think it's only just come to the forefront of people's minds now about what work looks like and culture and what's really important in a business. What's um, from a culture perspective, what is what have you noticed has become more important over the last year, 18 months or so? For me, it's trust and work-life balance. Those are, the, those are genuinely the two things. And I think you can ask pretty much anybody, either that runs a company or works in a company, and ask them the same question. And they would say, well, the, the directors would go, that we now trust the staff more, actually, because we can see they can deliver working at home. That's great. We've had to do that. And actually, you can also see that that work-life balance is genuinely so important at attracting and keeping people. Because, you know, during the pandemic, people did have this weird work-life balance sort of um, impact because they could go out and walk with dog or go to the park or whatever for that hour slot that Boris allowed them to. But actually it made a world of difference um, to, to them because they weren't nine to five in the office and then having to traipse home on a tube, for instance. So actually work-life balance and trust are the two things that have come out for me of the, the rebrand, the pandemic, whatever you want to call it, but also the two things moving forwards that I think are going to be so important for every business, regardless of size. I've got to ask, what do you prefer? Home or office? For me, I, I, I like the office, to be honest with you. Home is great, and I've got an office at home and I can work from home, but to be able to just open the door and go and see the guys and just chat about something or get a coffee or whatever, that, that for me is, is, is what I can do and thrive with, if that makes sense. Well, what happens when the office is quiet? Like, what, do, you find it, do you find it more difficult to work in that kind of environment? Or like, do you prefer... Um, I think it's interesting because... Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I think I like to have space to be able to go away and focus, but I also don't like walking through an empty office because it doesn't feel like anything's happening. And I said the same to my business partner. It was only a few weeks ago, actually. The guys were, some were on leave, some were on location. You know, most of the guys are back now because we, we can do that based on the fact we have to shoot stuff. Um, and I walked through and I was like, this is really weird because it's empty, but we've never been busier. But that's because they were out, outside doing things, right? Or, or, or not in the office. So for me, I have to have this buzz, this energy. And if it's not there, you have to find it some other way. But actually, for me, that's what I thrive off. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's um, Even I understand, you know, we, we run a 10-person, completely 100% remote workforce. I've got three people in Manchester, one in Kent, Chippenham, Swindon, Sirencester, everywhere. And um, it, it, took, it took a few months before people went, uh, I, there's, something, there's something missing here. Yeah. And I knew as soon as this as soon as they said it, I knew it straight away yeah. to be in a room with each other. They, they needed that for a little bit. I completely get that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's great when you have a location like yours where people are fairly local to your location anyway, where they can work from home and they can use the office as that base. Uh, I do think that really works. Uh, and as long as the company have, you know, are not dictating the days, but they just they get that freedom to. You know, they might all be in the office on the same day. Amazing. Uh, but that doesn't need to happen for work to get done because people do focus in their own environment. and that Of course. Of I mean, there's the core staff, that, you know, for instance, office managers or production managers that, that do need to have the ability to be in the office on a regular basis. But, you know, likening your remote working element to, to kind of where the world's to a certain extent been. We are actually looking at an office in London that is real estate in terms of it's not a co-working space. It's you know, four walls for argument's sake. And that's a strategic decision because we want to have our own space, but a space that our team can go to. Uh, and actually London's a key growth um, target for us at the moment in terms of staffing. So 
that is where we're going, which I think is fairly opposite to where the other uh, 90% of the world seem to be going because they're all coming out of London. So, yeah, mm. I think observe the masses and do the opposite is always what I say. So I, I have a, a bit of a strategical um, uh, question about that, if you don't mind. Um, you, you taking a decision to have real estate as an office in London and in Manchester and having that set base for the talent in that area to have. Yep. It is the idea behind, and this is just an assumption, correct me if I'm wrong, is the idea behind that is that it will give your company so much leverage and in turn so much profit or revenue that it will pay for itself anyway? Or is it more of a, we just need to do what the people want who work here and you'll sacrifice a bit of revenue or profit because of that? I th yeah, I think for me, you will um, attract better staff because you've got somewhere they can actually go. You can actually have a culture in a space which you have, to a certain extent, control over. If that makes sense, you can brand it, you can have it, you can make it your own. Oh, because you can build an environment where people thrive. Exactly. And I, and I think you can have clients in and you can show that actually co-working space, don't get me wrong, absolutely fine with co-working space. But in terms of us as a business, co-working space doesn't often work because we're either editing, so you've got to have headphones on and be in a quiet location, you're analysing data, you're collaborating, whatever it might be. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but actually having your own space gives you that ability to go, let's just go to a coffee shop to get that vibe of co-working, or let's just switch off and really focus in our own offices. And, and that for me is the business decision. And yes, it's an overhead that a lot of businesses are cutting and you can save 20, 30% or whatever on that, great. But for us, it's very much an investment and, and, and a want to attract the best talent by giving them all of the options possible. Yeah, uh, yeah, I get that completely. And I, I've, I've thought before, if we were going to if we were going to look at the future of work and especially if it's distributed or remote or, um, you know, satellite offices, whatever it might be. I have thought before, wouldn't it be great to have a co-working space where it's uh, where basically it's, it's private offices in a space where people can co-work if they want to but you can build environments that feel like places you work for example imagine like a imagine a big open plan building you know we're both in gloucestershire so we see like big barn conversion type office blocks uh, sometimes in the country imagine a big open space like that with private offices inside but then there's you know one end of the building that's built like a coffee shop it has the background noise, it has, it has the music, you can go and sit there and work with people and have that feeling that you're in a coffee shop. But the other end of the office is open space, whiteboards or chalkboards all over the walls, somewhere where you can be productive, glass uh, boards and that kind of thing. And you can essentially set up these environments that you thrive in, but tell the brain, because we know it's creative people, when you remove yourself and put yourself in a new environment, the brain fires. So I wonder if you can manufacture different environments in one building and whether that would really work for the, for the future of kind of co-working or remote work or where teams come together. So I've, so I've thought about that recently and wondered whether that would be a, a possible solution. And it, sound, it sounds to me from the conversations I have, even in this one, that that that's a possibility i think for the future so i guess my my question is what how do you see pinpoint working in the future is it the same is it different um i'm talking long term long term i mean yeah long term wise we will always have real estate in terms of offices as we grow we're going to fundamentally need that i think there'll be more expansion in terms of studio real estate we've obviously got the voice studio or the podcast studio here um us is obviously 2022 which is next year 
Um, and again, depending on the, and that's the thing, right? Depending on the culture of the country, depends on how people work. So actually it's going to be very dependent based on where we are, not regionally, but, but internationally. Um, so ask me that question again in 12 months and it'll be, it may, you know, I might have more clarity in terms of the US side of things. Um, but in terms of the UK, absolutely, we will have three designated areas, Manchester, Cheltenham and London, of which data and insights I would imagine and a bit of production will be in London. And the majority of the creative production, you know, those that hold cameras, for instance, will be, um, will be in Cheltenham and Gloucestershire. Amazing. Um, so let's dig into the future then. What's, what's the plans for Pinpoint? And is it all content or are we looking in other, other areas? What's the... What's so, the so it's all content in as much as we'll always be able to produce the content. That is great because actually that gives us a massive amount of leverage over other PR companies or whatever creative agencies that outsource it. But a massive focus on the data, the insights, the analytics and the deliverability. Because actually if we can't prove to our clients that they're making money from what we're doing, we actually aren't interested in producing the content for them because evidently we're not good enough. Okay, so we put a massive amount of pressure on ourselves and go, what we are doing will make you money. And if it doesn't make you money, then we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and go, well, that's not good enough. So for us, bigger focus on data, bigger focus on, on I suppose, deliverability, which is why we're hiring all these insights and analysts to be able to deliver upon that. Um, so you'll see we're actually rebuilding the website again um, to give us a completely different proposition in terms of in terms of visual proposition, because um, at the moment it screams video and a bit of data. We're taking it into a slightly different area in the next six months. So I got an email about changes with Google. Yeah. And what that means for content. I think you're doing an event on it, but can you give me a bit of an overview? I'm yet to dig into this stuff, so it would be really helpful for me. Um, I don't know when this is going out, but the 7th of July is the event. Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, in terms of what's changing, well, Google are, you know, cookies, for instance, they're going to be starting to change the, the process and actually what happens there in terms of being able to track people's data and capture them as you can now. And this is very much looking into, OK, so how are we going to essentially engage with people and capture people's data without the ability to use cookies on your websites? And if you actually think about it, it is quite scary for marketers because they go, 100% of the time they use cookies so that they can retarget people on whatever platform it might be. Pixels as well, if it's Facebook, I get that. Okay, so fine, how are we gonna change that when Google say no more? Well, actually how you do that is you need to have, and this isn't a sales pitch, I promise Danny, but you need to have good content that actually captures and engages the user and makes them want to hand over their data. And I always liken this to, you know, if you go to the FT or if you go to, frankly, the drum or any website, uh, they'll normally have a paywall there, right? You'll be able to see two or three articles, then there'll be a paywall and it will charge you three quid or something for the privilege. That's fine for now because they can still cook you so they can still reserve content to you and they're getting three quid for the privilege. Cool, fine. But actually when cookies disappear, what's going to become the revenue of choice? And I think, and I'm not, you know, this is my prediction, so don't hold me to it, but I think people are going to get rid of the paywall and the paywall will be your data and they'll say, okay, fine. So you can check this out but I want your email address, I want your phone number and your location, then you can check out these articles because then you can go back to the reserving and you can then reserve people content because you own their data, they've consented, it's all very above board. So I think the whole model of what is data is going to just change massively and almost become a currency. Does that mean we're about to see a surge in email marketing? You see, I don't think we are. Because, and the reason for that, I think we've seen that surge during the pandemic. And I think there's people are bored of it. There's too much noise. 
I think we're going to see a surge of intelligent marketing. And I think that's slightly different. So I think you're going to be basically, you're going to be targeted more directly, but through things you're genuinely interested in because you've genuinely handed over your, your content, your, your, sorry, your data. So I think it's going to be a very interesting transition. It's over the next two or three years anyway. So it's not overnight, but it's also, when you think about what happened with GDPR, when everyone was incredibly scared that it was just going to switch off, I think actually there's going to be an element of phasing, a little bit more relaxation than people are realising, but nevertheless, it's still fundamental to be able to, to plan for this, essentially. And the way that you're going to catch people is by basically having engaging good content and a very, very good value proposition. So when you talk about, like, what you mentioned there is a bit of a prediction, but I completely get where that's going in terms of, like, it's not going to be email marketing as such, it's going to be really intelligent marketing. What is yeah. an example of what that could be? Okay, so perfect example would be, and if we tie this into voice, for instance, you know, you can capture so much data through both Amazon Alexa, but also just by using voice, you know, you can understand their tone, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, you'll be able to start to be able to push things into people's homes more than you can ever before, because you've got, for instance, their Gmail or their data or they've consented to whatever that looks like. And bear in mind, the customer journey will change. It has to change. So if, for instance, it changes how it could do, you could then just start to retarget people when they're in their kitchen cooking because, you know, at five o'clock they're cooking dinner. So you go, well, why don't you buy these pork sausages? So that's what I mean by this whole intelligent marketing thing and using, again, data to be able to do this. Because if we're harnessing data now of customer trends, client trends and the, and the methods that people go to buy a pen, for instance, we've got that data regardless of if cookies disappear. So we can continue to remarket in a really intelligent way at the end of that. So I think in the short term, you're going to see a massive push for data collation. And I think when actually the data or the cookies um, uh, freeze comes into play, you're going to see a slightly or maybe even a totally different way that people market and engage with, 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 with clients fundamentally. Yeah. I think it's quite exciting though. I genuinely think it's quite exciting. It's a yeah. good take up. Yeah, I, th I think so as well. Just because we're, we needed a, a little bit of a shake up as well. We, yeah. we needed to, I think the marketing space particularly needs a bit of a shake. Uh, it's become so repetitive, same old. Yep. Uh, I think people are very aware now, whether it's consciously or not, that there are there's so many tactical things happening around them to get their business. And we become so aware of it. We, we need something else as businesses and marketers and those kinds of people. We need something else to be able to get someone's attention because it's just so difficult now. But it's also, you know, Apple have started to do it in terms of in terms of making people consent and actually uh, not giving away quite as much as they used to. And I just think it's a matter of time and it's just going to cut the wheat from the chaff. And those marketeers, for instance, that have just sent out hundreds of emails every single week for the last 10 years are going to have a bit of a shake up. But agencies or younger businesses or startups that understand where the world's going and the pain points and the pressures that, you know, are currently out there, I think they'll just transition perfectly fine. So I don't think people need to worry too much. They just simply need to move quite literally with the times. Otherwise, they are going to be left behind and it's not going to be good for their business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sticking on the topic of video, I've seen a lot recently with, you know, if people want to cut through the noise, doing video-based uh like personal video-based marketing. You know, these platforms like Vidyard and uh, Onjuro and those places 
where someone subscribes to your newsletter or like that happens anymore, but someone subscribes to what you do or downloads a PDF, whatever it is. And instead of you just getting a, an email, you get an email with a video that yeah. says, hi, I'm Danny and I run the business and we created this thing because it does this and solves this problem. Thanks for downloading it. And, you know, and it becomes much more of a personal way to market people at scale. Yeah. Uh, so I do think that we need something to shake it up. And I think yeah. the more we get to like a personal data driven uh, uh, marketing aspect, I think the better. Yeah, I think the video side of things and the personalized videos, great, serves a purpose. And again, I think that's all it does is it serves a purpose and it may be beneficial. Um, is it for every business? No. But actually, if you're looking at where the future's going, because bearing in mind, Vidyard's already here, the future's going into the whole AR and the VR and actually using your phone to be able to see basically you, Danny, on my desk, which is a horrible <laughs> thought, but that's actually what you could eventually do. And, um, and you know, we've worked with clients on, on developing this, this brand augmented reality where you hold the phone up on a business card and it brings out the person and he talks to you in whatever way he talks to you. And you can do it to a really high level, a really high level or a really basic level. And it doesn't need to cost huge amounts. It was very much like when video first became a thing in terms of the cost parameters from a starting point of view. And yeah. then it up from there. But, you know, the way the world is going, it is going digitally. If you can't see that, I'm sorry. Um, but it is also going to be very, very exciting. Nice. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's exciting. Please never sit on my desk in that way, though. I won't. I won't. Oh, maybe. Too, too bad. Too much for thinking. Although, if you, if we have some drinks in your office, I might stand on the table anyway and do a little dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just a rite of passage, though. That's just general. <laughs> <production>. <laughs> Good stuff. You know, we've talked about quite a lot today in terms of uh, podcasting, yeah. content, repurposing, your, your rebrand and reasons behind that, the way that we work. I think if we focus back on uh, podcasting and the content that, that, you, uh, that you do and repurpose, what's the, what's the biggest thing you think people need to know about content production and repurposing that will help their business? Yeah, um, I would suggest plan it, even if it's just a couple of notes on a piece of paper, don't just hold a camera up and start speaking. Know what you're going to say. Know what you're going to say. Know where you're going to put it as well, because there's no good just putting things on Instagram stories because your market might not be there. So you need to be able to identify that, understand where you're putting it, and make sure you know what you're actually going to say or the messages you need to deliver before you chat, essentially. Nice. That's great. Thanks very much, Oliver. It's been great to get to know the business, especially yeah. reasons behind rebranding and maybe a bit about your exciting future in uh, in content and video. It's yeah. been um, it's been really interesting watching your journey, actually, uh, knowing of you uh, years ago and then just following how the changes happened and how the pandemic and how you've thrived through it really has been really cool. So uh, great to get to dig into a little bit more. And thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Cheers, Danny. Appreciate it.